Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Plowline Podcast and the next installment of Seattle Knot, a Plowline story. I'm your host, Jeremy Tunnell, and I hope you check out the last episode, number 23, that Jerry and I uploaded. It was a really engaging conversation around Jerry's work and her dissertation and the five stages of decolonization. It's really cool stuff. So go check out episode number 23 right after you're done here. I think you'll enjoy it. Today on Seattle Knot, I want to talk a little bit about the existential weight of life. This is something that we all feel. And we know we all feel because there are massive genres of self-help books and YouTube videos that work tirelessly to try and assist us in pushing through, overcoming. I know this is true because anti-anxiety medication and anti-depression medication is massively uh, prescribed in this country. I know this is true because, like myself, there are so many Americans, especially now, who are utilizing the mental health care that they may or may not have access to through insurance in order to talk to a counselor. Life is hard. The Buddha tells us life is suffering. What he doesn't tell us is that suffering can be overcome. However, it can be accepted in our ways or methods in choosing to see it, how we respond to it, what we're going to do about it. I've been in counseling since I was about 20 years old. Nobody told me to go to counseling. I didn't have a parent that uh, encouraged me um, or a mentor. Somehow, I just knew I needed to go. And the counselor I went to wasn't perfect. But he was the counselor that I needed at the time. Over the years, I have probably seen about a dozen different counselors. And there's been long spans of time in which I didn't go to counseling at all. However, I highly value the time I spent in counseling. I also value the skills and the discernment that I've gained over the years in knowing when a counselor is going to work for me and when they're not. And making that decision early on that this isn't going to work for me and yet not stopping in my pursuit to try and find somebody in which I can engage with to be able to work on and uncover and peel back these existential layers of 
pain, difficulty, dread that we all feel. My parents divorced when I was five. It was, um, it was an earth shattering in, um, in kind of the literal, most literal sense uh, for a five-year-old. And for my sister, who was four and a half years older. My mother, at 17 years old, became pregnant. And um, she married the young man uh, at the encouragement of my grandmother. I'm not so sure about my grandfather. Didn't last very long. My sister came along, and my mother promptly, actually before my sister came along, my mother left the relationship. My grandmother drove her from the small foothills of the Sierra Nevada's town in which I was born, my grandfather was born, my mother was born, my sister was born. Out of that town and to San Francisco, the year was 1968. The two of them in their very prim and proper 1960s polyester dresses. My mother describes hers as a white and orange polka dot dress as she was seven or eight months pregnant. Walked down Haight-Ashbury and wanted to take in the sights of San Francisco of that day and age. My mother was being dropped off at a wayward girl's home where she was going to give birth. And indeed she did. And um, she ended up staying in San Francisco for quite some time. Well, a year and a half or so. She ended up making it back to the foothills and, um, and in the process she met my father and they began to date, and from dating, they moved in with each other. And um, my mother became pregnant again. They married. There's photos of my parents, my mother wearing a purple tie-dye dress. My father uh, wearing, I believe it was, I believe it was kind of like a cream, ruffly tuxedo top. His best man stood there in a red, white, and blue leather vest with fringe all over it it was a classic scene from the 19 early 1970s i came along and for about four and a half years they did what they could now i think that there is absolutely an argument to be made for parents staying together. And I think there is absolutely an argument being made for couples divorcing when that relationship doesn't work. There was most certainly physical and verbal abuse in that relationship. I can remember it even as a four or five year old. I remember being huddled under my bed with my sister, looking out down my doorway, down the hall at their bedroom as the two of them screamed at each other. The door slammed when they caught sight of us huddled under the bed. But I will say this. I married a woman 
mother and father stayed together. They had six children. She's the middle. And they stayed together until her father's death and her mother never remarried. And that family's not perfect. They have problems. But there is a fundamental foundation in my wife's life that does not exist in mine or my sister's or so many other people who come from homes that are broken either through divorce or never marrying. I don't know what it is. I realize that this is not a particularly progressive ideal. But it seems to me that for better or for worse, having two parents in a home in which despite the fact that there's conflict, that conflict is dealt with, despite the fact that there is difficulty, that difficulty is dealt with, and the joys are seen as well within the context of that relationship, it models something for a child that is, found, that is, that is foundational, that is, that is something they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. Conversely, my sister knew her father, but never knew her, her biological parents married. The first father she knew was my father. And um, after about five years of marriage, my father uh, packed up his stuff into a duffel bag, um, jumped in his pickup truck, and left the foothills, Sierra Nevada foothills town, and headed to Bakersfield to go and be with his parents and his dying brother and his wife and child, which was a year younger than me. I think there's a lot of complications that go on in people's lives. You know, I think um, life and death and marriage and divorce and and all of these things, th these are hard. And for a long time, I was trying my hardest to try and figure it out, to figure out where the blame laid. Um, so as I went through counseling in, uh, after I moved out on my own in my very early 20s, these were the subjects I dealt with. I dealt with family of origin issues. I dealt with what it was to grow up in a household that literally had exploded. Uh, my, father, my, my father's brother passed away of cancer. Shortly thereafter, uh, the divorce was finalized with my parents. As my father stayed on there in Bakersfield to finish the house that his brother had started for his family. My grandparents were there. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist minister at the time. My grandmother, a preacher's wife, caring for their dying son. Ensuring that his widow and their child were taken care of. And my father had known this woman most of his life. They went to high school together. She ended up marrying his older brother. So it probably shouldn't be that much of a surprise when they married very quickly after. She ended up getting a promotion of a job which transferred her to Alaska. And the three of them left. 
In the time after my father left, I remember sitting on the porch the day he left. My dog, a German shepherd named Stoney, was sitting next to me, and I, I cried fiercely for the loss of my father. I remember every time we would drive through downtown, I would look at the two hotels that were there because I was convinced for some reason, I'm sure I heard a story about maybe he had stayed there or something, to see if his truck was there. A 1961 Chevy Black uh, um, uh, flatbed. I saw my father twice prior to my uncle passing away. Twice that I remember. The first time he picked me up, we drove to the movie theater probably after having uh, a drive through burger somewhere, and we watched Bambi. It was the first time I ever saw the movie, and of course, Bambi's mother dies. It was terrible. It was terrible. I cried, and I'm not sure my dad really wanted to deal with that. Because the next time he picked me up, we probably went to that same drive-thru, grabbed a burger, went to the movie theater, and he took me in to see Young Frankenstein with Gene Wilder. I had no idea what I was looking at. I didn't know if that was a... He was laughing. I was terrified. Frankenstein was on the screen. You know, that was scary. Um, so it's interesting to me that you know, in the midst of this experience with my father, he leaned, you know, he was young, he was 24. He leaned, he leaned towards self-protection. I think this is a human trait. I also think this is a result of divorce. Divorce inherently creates an unnatural dynamic between children and parents in which children are, or in which parents are automatically in the mode of, of self-protection and self-perpetuation. That's the whole point to divorce. The whole point to divorce is the circumstances of the situation of divorce are no longer tenable. That in order to protect oneself, you must break the covenant of marriage and anything else that is a part of it and walk away from it and hope that you can rebuild it. And it's not that I haven't seen divorces that are able to rebuild it. My oldest son and his, his first wife divorced. My grandson was about four years old. They've got an excellent relationship. They co-parent beautifully. They travel together um, on not only vacations with, with their son and their significant others, but they, um, you know, they, they ensure that, that uh, he's cared for, that he's loved. They, they work out a parenting plan together. It's not perfect, but no parenting plan is. However, the effect on my grandson, despite the fact that he sees both of his parents love each other, both of his parents care for each other, but they're not married, and they don't make decisions together, and they are with other significant others, is silently devastating. Even to this day, at 12 and 13 years old, there are times where I, I, can see, I can see the sorrow in him. I can recognize it. I try and engage him on it. 
we're usually able to hash out some sense of a conversation around it, but it's difficult for him to articulate it because no one else talks about it. So there's no language around it because parents are working desperately hard to try and move on. But a child is never going to move on. An adult, in many ways and respects, is never going to move on. The reality is, is that there is a part of you that is left behind in the rubble of divorce. So at 20, that's where I started. I worked on family of origin. I mentored with, I was involved in the church at the time. I mentored with my pastors in mentoring relationships. I sought fathers. Even though I was raised with my father, my relationship was never great. And I sought out fathers. I had two mothers at this point. My stepmother uh, ended up raising me as her own. I spent significant amounts of time with my biological mother in the summers and holidays. But I did go and live with my father. We were a family as best as we could. But there's damage there. There's there's damage there that you can never cover. There's damage there, uh, you know, even in the stability of, of calling the woman who's taken this mantle on mom, and she was, she is, and calling your cousin, because that's what he was, he was my first cousin, your brother, and he is my brother. It's super glued together. It's always broken. On the other end of things, my sister and my mother did their best to try and figure things out, try and make it through life. Um, My mother never really had a lot of responsibilities when it came to parenting. My sister was fairly self-sufficient my grandparents were there constantly we had moved into the carriage house behind their house after the divorce and my mother and sister stayed there until my sister graduated high school my mother later left the foothills down moved to the valley to go and try and make a life for herself and she did she married a man named larry when i was 13 years old my sister never recovered that's relative i'm not sure i ever really recovered but my sister never got past the point of being able to say i'm broken and i don't like it i don't know why and i'm curious enough that i'm going to try and figure it out That's a difficult That's a difficult chapter for me. I love my sister. The year after I went to go to Alaska after not seeing my father for almost a year and a half after they had moved. I spent the summer up there fully expecting to go back and start over there in in California. I had 
I had been held back in the second grade. There was a lot of trauma in my life. I was going to repeat it with Mrs. Finney a second time. My father and my stepmother were hoping and praying that I would end up staying. I didn't. I hopped on a plane at the end of the summer. I flew down to California. I was probably, I don't know, maybe three weeks, a month before school started. I remember one day my mother and I running errands. It was raining. Raining hard. It didn't rain like that much in, 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 the, in the summertime, in the foothills. But it was raining so hard. We sat in front of the post office. My mother took a deep breath. She took my hand. She started to cry. And she said abruptly, Next week I'm putting you on a plane and you're flying back to Alaska. You're going to live with your father and you're going to go to school there. He can give you a better life than I can. And she hopped out of the car and went into the post office. I know that was excruciating for her. It was devastating for me. I was a mess, though. In the two years after my parents had separated and we moved in behind my grandparents, I was a California wild child. I had the brightest blonde hair you could imagine. Tan skin, cut off shorts, no shoes, usually no shirt. And I would roam the neighborhood. I built a tree fort out of scrap wood above the cemetery. And I would spend my days at the public pool. I scrounged together a bow and arrow and would shoot it into people's siding or sheds or trees. Or One day, a police officer must have been called on me because he tracked me down and he took my bow and arrow. I was a mess. Going to live with my father was the right thing to do. So I did. I restarted the second grade in Anchorage, Alaska. I spent one year in that school and uh, went to the third grade at a new school. I went to the third and fourth grade there. And uh, Anchorage was growing so fast that a new school had been built. So we went to the fourth and the, or the fifth and the sixth grade there. We moved out of Anchorage, moved on to a cattle ranch, my father pursuing his own dream in eastern Oregon, and spent middle school in a small little school of no more than 150 kids. The graduating high school class that year was six. Our uh, little middle school class consisted of sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I think fifth grade may have been included, and there were 32 kids. I didn't see much of my sister. We grew apart. We, uh, we just were different ages. We were four and a half years apart. She had started high school. I was in middle school. We didn't see much of each other. 
right around my freshman or sophomore year of high school, we kind of started to reconnect. I would go down there and we'd reconnect. She was the first person that ever got me high on marijuana. I thought I could hear deer talking outside. I loved those moments with her. I loved driving to her favorite record store to pick up a new album like Yaz upstairs in Eric's room or R.E.M. Green. I loved plugging those tapes into the tape deck of her little Volkswagen Rabbit as the two of us drove up to the top of the pass so we could listen to the album over and over again, up the pass and back down. I loved anything I could do to spend time with my sister because those moments were so rare. When she had children, I couldn't help myself. They, 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 they were my children, too. And I think that was acceptable for her for a while. But I think the older they got and the more involved I got in inserting myself into the, their lives, I think that became difficult for her. Our values aren't necessarily the same. And because she never dealt with any of that trauma or pain, she has ways of coping with it that aren't exactly healthy. Not to blame her. I have ways of coping with it that are not exactly healthy. But if those things go unacknowledged, then they kind of run amok. My oldest, the nephew, he's 22. And uh, the youngest, my niece, she's 19. And they are um, incredible kids. My nephew lives here close by. I see him quite regularly. My relationship with my niece has become somewhat estranged. And I think that's probably due to a desire to not upset her mother. And I can understand that, but I miss her. These things that we find ways to cope with, they're, they're because there's no foundation. It's because life has been blown to pieces at some point in the past. I see it with my grandson. I can see it with the two, the two boys that, uh, that I've become a step-parent to and the divorce that they experience later in life, 16 and 17 years old. I can see it in divorced survivors, you know, children of, of, uh, of uh, divorce. All the time. There's no foundation. There's something missing. There are holes that you can fall through. I have to be very cautious of the the traps of addictive behavior. I always stayed away from drugs because I always kind of knew they weren't going to do me any favors. Um, you know, I, I've never tried any, any hard drugs. Marijuana, I took mushrooms once. I wouldn't really consider those drugs. I don't partake 
uh, marijuana on a, on a regular basis. I just don't like the way it makes me feel a lot of the time. If I'm going to take it, I'll actually eat it rather than smoke it. Alcohol, on the other hand, I like a lot. If I'm not careful, I'll drink four, five, six days a week. I'll finish off a bottle of wine a night. I'll, you know, I don't really keep hard alcohol in the house, again, because I know I will drink it. I used to drink beer a fair bit, but it really doesn't make me feel good. So I work very hard in order to try and keep my drinking to at least some semblance of a manageable amount. When I was young, probably about 13, I came into contact with a playboy for the first time. It was actually the first moment that I uh, had ever experienced sexual climax. I didn't even know what happened. It was a profound moment. I didn't seek out pornography. You couldn't really. I mean, it was magazines back then, you know. Um, but the following summer, my buddy Jack and Isaac ended up getting a hold of a bag of Playboys from uh, w- one of the neighbors that was cleaning out his collection. And I remember we created a club called the Rad Club. Bicycles was what it was all about, but it quickly became about Playboy. And I remember, I think maybe the first time I ever fell in love was with a Playboy centerfold. And um, I brought it home. My mother found it. And we had the first conversations about sex. She bought me a book. and. and encouraged me to ask any questions I had. That was her approach to it. I brought that book back to my parents' house in Alaska. And oh my God, they shit a brick. They had a different approach. But the cat was out of the bag at that point. At that point, I had told my brother when I came home everything, including showing him the book. So their approach was to sit down and answer any questions that we possibly had. I think I was a little more ready for that conversation than my brother was at the time. For the most part, pornography didn't really play a role in my upbringing. I came into contact with it a half a dozen times as a kid. Do I think it's a self-destructive thing? Yeah, I think it can be. Do I think it can also be an exemplification of beauty? Sure. But that's not what it is in our culture. It's too too prolific. When I was 25, 26 years old, I was finishing up my college career. I had gotten a job in an office as a salesperson. I thought it was, I called myself a marketing manager. It was a small design and marketing firm. And, uh, and I would go and I would find clients. I didn't know 
anything. But I was under the tutelage of a brilliant man um, who had started the marketing communications department at the university back in the 60s. And I worked with a couple of friends of mine, actually. I remember one day walking into this one friend's office and he quickly fumbled with his monitor. And, uh, and I was like, you all right, dude? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We had our conversation. I went back to my office. A few minutes later, he came into my office and says, hey, do you want to you have lunch today? I said, yeah, 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 absolutely. So the two of us went and had lunch, and he proceeded to tell me about internet pornography. It was the first time I'd ever heard about it. Never even thought about it. And he was telling me from the standpoint of, man, now, granted, we were Christians, and Christians think that this is, this is the way you do it. And I don't think this is the way you do it. And he says to me, I need some accountability. I just need an accountability partner in this. Okay, yeah, sure, buddy. What ended up happening was uh, I became infected by it. Um, uh, For the first time, I had found internet pornography. And this is dial-up days. You know, so (laughs) you, (laughs) you had to wait quite a while. Uh, while that photo un- uh, downloaded. And I don't think there was any video at the time. Well, that was it. You know, so 24, 25 years old, um, already kind of a, you know, sexual mess. Um, you know, I had such massive Christian guilt when it came to my body and sharing that experience with uh, with another person and... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I was a mess. Um, yeah, I did not have a healthy perspective on my sense of being, my sense of sexuality. Um, and so and so then this is introduced, and uh, I was off off and running. Now, what I've kind of discovered over years of counseling is that to some degree, you know, this addictive behavior is trying to fulfill, um, you know, it, it, it's trying to protect oneself from that pain, right? That pain of sitting in the car in the rain when your mother tells you that um, she's uh, going to send you to go live with her father. That pain of that first girlfriend when you come over unsuspectingly after school one day and you know you're thinking maybe you'll go grab a bite to eat and she sits you down and says i'm breaking up with you that pain of um you know your father is there and one day he's not that pain of relationships that explode pornography doesn't do that it doesn't do that for you it is stable it's consistent it's safe it is something that can um, be relied on. If you've got an internet connection, um, you're all good. And I think in the world today, um, you know, and, and I think that translates regardless of if you've been experienced divorce or not. You know, I think that I think that a huge part of what we're doing um, in 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 our world today is we are exchanging um, these messy relationships with another person that require you to deal with you and the other person deal with themselves 
and we're exchanging them for these false, safe, um, you know, quote unquote relationships that, uh, that, that are not real. And on one respect, those relationships can stop at um, simply dialing up uh, a page and, and watching a video, or they can go as far as creating these um, relationships with individuals on things like OnlyFans, um, or they can go as far as um, going into things like prostitutes, massage parlors, um, uh, strip clubs. Um, these are still false, right? I mean, you know, when if you go into a strip club, you're 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 participating in this relationship with somebody where um, where the illusion that they want to be um, in in you know with you intimately is being perpetuated in order to so they can pay their bills. Now, don't get me wrong; I know why we're here. I do. Just like opioids or alcohol, pornography is extraordinarily antiseptic, right? It, 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 it does an excellent job at numbing the pain, the existential dread of life for the moment. But it does nothing to develop the person. And I say this with, with full, with you know, full transparency. I am not transcended uh, my addiction to pornography, and that's what it is. And I'm not saying that everybody look who looks at pornography is addicted. What I am saying is that pornography is an incredibly addictive material. And that there are a lot of people who are. And to not call that out is just crazy. But we do live in crazy times. The crazy thing is, is that sexuality is tied directly to identity. It's the reason why we are talking about and dealing with these ideas about gender and identity and um, and sexual orientation, and they're all tied to identity. It's because it's because the way that I see myself sexually is deeply tied to the way I see myself as a human being, and that can be easily mixed up and confused. And I don't necessarily know what the proper way is. I mean, the Christian indoctrination that I grew up with, it fucked me up. It fucked me up. But I do know that there is this idea of personal sovereignty and that when we hold to that personal sovereignty, when we develop that personal sovereignty and, um, and we lean into that personal sovereignty through self-awareness and personal development, that, um, that a maturity can grow out of that. But when we don't lean into it, when we constantly are seeking for satisfaction outside of ourselves, when we are constantly consuming um, content and media and product in order to try and soothe this thing inside of us, this existential dread, 
this hole that cannot be filled, then we are crumbling. And I, I, think, I think a lot of us are crumbling. I, uh, I left that counselor after about six years of on again, off again, seeing this, this, uh, this person. And, um, and, you know, I would take breaks, right? Like I would reach this point where I felt like the conversation was just kind of going round and round. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I just knew that, geez, this does not feel productive. And so I, I left and, um, and what I found was, was that I, I would go six, eight, you know, months, a year, and I would kind of realize, oh, I needed time to process everything we had talked about. I needed time to implement everything we had talked about. I journaled, uh, you know, I journaled quite a bit. I did a lot of self-reflection. Um, I've always been kind of interested in developing me and developing my sense of self and um, trying to figure out what that was. And at first that was a completely selfish endeavor and it probably should be. Uh, and then eventually ended up kind of being, um, a codependent endeavor, um, as I went into marriage counseling with my now wife. Um, and, uh, and eventually it became, um, I think we're developing a, um, interdependent, uh, relationship, which still requires counseling. I left that counselor and I went and I um, found another counselor. This guy kind of was fairly Freudian, um, you know, big old beard, glasses, looked like maybe he smoked a pipe. I saw him for two sessions and, and on the end of the second session, he diagnosed me. And I think, frankly, he nailed it. He said, ah, yes, you suffer from existential anxiety. And I knew what those words meant. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. What do I do about it? Well, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I mean, it's nothing you can do about it. You, you, you can talk about it. You can journal about it. You can deal with it. You could take a drug if you wanted to. But you can't do anything about it. That was the last time I saw him. And then I ended up... Uh, Dating my wife, uh, and in the midst of dating, before we were even engaged, we both had come out of divorce, and and it became pretty obvious that the problems we were seeing in our relationship were the problems that we had drug into our relationship, and so we went to counseling together, and that counseling turned into premarital counseling with the same counselor, and 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 uh, that counselor, she was she was fantastic, remarkable. And after that, it turned into marriage counseling for the first five years of our marriage. And then, and then Anne retired. And um, she helped us build a foundation that we're working on today. She allowed us to figure out how to put some of the things that were in those bags away and move on and try and develop a foundation of our own. As our marriage kind of went on, my addiction to pornography continued. And so um, I knew I had to do something about it. I just didn't know what. So I, I went to um, Sexaholics Anonymous. It's a real thing. A small group, small town showed up and 
they could, the, the people there could not believe I was there. There were only about five people in the room, all men. And, uh, and they were all, they were all there because they were court ordered to be there. Uh, you know, some of them had flashed somebody on the street. Other people got caught peeping in people's windows, uh, you know, so on and so forth. So these people were court mandated to be at this SSA, um, or SAA meeting. And I, I believe I attended two, um, and both times, you know, at the end of the first one, I kind of told my story and they were like, what are you doing here? And the second time, um, I was like, well, then what would you recommend? And they were like, well, don't end up like us for one, because the road you're on does end up like us. And two, go see this guy. So they gave me the name of a counselor. So I went and I, I went to this counselor and, um, this guy was stunned to see me because it was the same scenario. He's like, I work with court mandated sexual offenders or sexual predators or people who have been, you know, who have been caught masturbating in public, you know, anything like that. And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be those guys. Um, so how do I deal with this? You know, like, how do I, how do I, how do I get a hold of this thing? And um, we talked about identity and we talked about, um, you know, about the idea of, um, of seeing yourself beyond this addictive behavior. And we talked about the sources, which I had talked a ton about with counselors. And I kind of began to see my way through. And I walked away from, from, from those sessions and felt pretty good. A decade later. I am, uh, you know, the, the recession happens, my wife and I, and I'll tell this story next time. My wife and I end up having to leave this small little town that, that, that we were in. Um, we're homeless for a little while, but we've got a small teardrop trailer and a, a truck that's reliable. And we spend a little bit of time traveling through the Southwest. We end up back in the Seattle area. Um, midst the recession, we can't get jobs in our career field. Both of us are working retail. Um, I do that for about five years. I start a company. I start a construction company. It was terrible. I hated it. I'll talk about that another time as well. It kind of wrecked me. I, you know, I was working 80 plus hours a week. Um, I was building this company. Um, it was the kind of company in construction in which there's barely enough money in order to kind of make it to the next project. Uh, I was pretty much a handyman and, um, and hated it. And uh, I found myself leaning into old habits. And I reached out to, um, to a counselor who was very expensive and, um, you know, worked exclusively in this, uh, in this, um, in this sort of field. His name was uh, Collins. Uh, the name of his book is Breaking the Cycle. Read his book, counseled with him once a week for almost a year. I have to say, it, it, it was good. Um, I, reached, I reached some understandings about attachment issues and these ideas of childhood um, disassociation and 
and you know the desire in order to have stability in one's life that I had never quite reached before. As I said, pornography is pervasive. But I understand the source of this draw inside of me. And I understand how to clip those, um, those lines when they're pulling on you. It gave me some tools. I recommend the book. So, two years ago, year and a half ago, a little more, uh, right as the pandemic's getting started, I, I leave uh, that construction business behind, starting this, this business with my wife that she started 10 years ago. Co3consulting.net is her invention. She, she has been consulting for over 10 years with it. I simply am um, in getting involved with her invitation. And the production company, Plowline Productions, is, is mine, um, producing the Mixed Plate podcast and the Plowline podcast. We're trying to make something. We're trying to, we're trying to tell these stories that you can relate to, that you can be a part of, and trying to hopefully point a way forward even though there's no perfect way. In the midst of all this, I started up counseling again. This time, it feels a little more intentional rather than reactionary. I told my counselor, who I I meet with every two weeks, um, and that might be too much here in a little while, right? I might need to back off, but one of the things I told him was, you know, he, he praised me. I think we had, we had, we had probably, you know, done three sessions at this point. And he said, you know, you're, you, you have this remarkable grasp of, of, of yourself and your, and, 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 you know, your sense of self. And well, yeah, I, I've, I've been through a shitload of counseling and at the very least, I know the language. And at the very most, I, I have some, maybe some lightened ideals about, about this stuff. Uh, but, um, but I said, don't, don't praise me because, um, because I'm a fucking mess and, um, and I need to be here and I need to be here because I need to find my way forward. I need to, I, I need to find, I need to grapple with this existential dread of life and I need to wrestle it until I understand how to stand up above it because staying in the dread only continues to pull you down and it's not like the dread's ever going to go away but the dread does not have to be your master it's like when jacob wrestled the angel and uh when the morning broke jacob jacob beats the angel he 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 bests the angel but the angel breaks his hip he he, he you know he breaks his his hip, and he has his injury for the rest of his life. And uh, it's the mark the angel left with him. Well, it's the same thing, right? You're going to wrestle with this, this angel of your lower self. You just are. Or you're not, and, 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 and it's just going to stand on you your entire life. And you're going to cope with it with pornography or drugs or alcohol 
um, you know, and uh, or, or just plain ignoring it or prescription drugs. There's all kinds of ways in order to to avoid wrestling, you know, having that wrestling match. Rage is a great one. You can rage through your life. It's not going to do you any good. You either wrestle with that angel and expect to be scarred from it. And then stand up. And I don't know that I'm standing on both my legs, but I'm trying to stand up. That's the key. Journal. Counsel. Don't stop if you find one that doesn't work. And if you do one that does more talking than you, I would suggest you find another one. And if you do one that wants to praise you, I would suggest you either find another one or set the record straight. Battle with your vices. Don't just succumb to them. Wrestle with this angel of our lower selves and stand up on your own two feet. Thanks. Check us out at uh, plowline.com. You can find information there regarding upcoming books, both the podcasts. The Mixed Plate podcast and the Plowline podcast can be downloaded on any of the popular podcasting websites. If you want to be involved in this work with us and you want to be a partner, you can go to patreon.com backslash mixed plate podcast. It says it's for the mixed plate podcast, but it's for all the work we do. Um, you can find early episodes of, of Jerry's podcast there. And if you contribute, it goes directly to the work. We all have jobs. We all have responsibilities. We all have things we got to do. This is what we choose to do in order to try and change the world. And maybe you helping out and contributing can help us do that. Finally, if you could go to our social media, we've got facebook.com backslash mixplate podcast and backslash plowline are two different pages that we have. Um, you can continue the conversation there. And if you would give a rating and a, uh, a review on your podcast site for this podcast or any of them that you liked, it would really help us out. It changes the algorithm in order to get us more visible. So thanks so much. If you like what we're doing here, engage and participate. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.